0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job. Job, chapter number one. If you find in your Bibles the book of Psalms, just go to the book directly before that. Job chapter number 1. I'm going to begin by simply reading verses 18 to 22. Job chapter 1, verse 18 to 22. The Word of God says this. While he was yet speaking, there came another And said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What we just witnessed in those few verses is nothing short of remarkable. Here's a man who just lost everything he had in one fell swoop, one quick tragedy, and his response is one of worship. And I ask you this morning, why do you worship? Why do we worship? Why do we bother coming here and singing songs to the glory of God? listening to his word, making the decisions we make, the sacrifices we make, the things we do and don't do? Why worship God? That's the question today. And I pray that this ancient text, this infallible text, will address that question for us. So let us ask the author of that text to bless it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we come to this text this morning, we are struck by just how heavy it is. We thank you for the opportunity that we can enter in by faith, give us faith to concentrate, to focus, and by the Spirit of God, may you teach us, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Job. Today we begin a sermon series called The Book of Job, Gospel Light for Days of Darkness. I don't know exactly how many sermons I'll preach. I'm thinking it's about 10, maybe 15 at the most. So I'm not going to take the route of John Calvin who preached 159 sermons in the book of Job, nor will I take the Puritan Joseph Carroll's example and preach through the book of Job for 23 years. Imagine in the 1600s, Derek Thomas makes a comment here, he says, if, if you're part of this church and your pastor's preaching through Job and you move away, and 20 years later you come and visit, and he's still in the book of Job. That's not my intention. I'm going to pull out from this book some themes in the form of questions, and Lord willing over the next maybe six months, five months, 10 or 15 sermons addressing those questions from the book of Job. Now, originally, I looked at this as an opportunity for us as a church to be able to process suffering, to wrestle with our doubts, which are real. Is anybody here that doesn't have doubts? It's a rhetorical question. To know how to embrace the darkness. But more so, we need an eternal perspective. And as I've studied this book over the past two months and continue to do so, I realize that the book is less about suffering and more about God. Suffering is certainly part of it, but ultimately, like all the books of the Bible, this book is to teach us about who God is. The book of Job is found in what's often called the writings of the, of the Old Testament, sometimes called books of wisdom or poetry. In the Bible, we find lower wisdom. Lower wisdom is things like um, practical living. The book of Proverbs is lower wisdom, how to run a household, how to manage your finances, and so on. But then there's higher wisdom. And higher wisdom deals with the ultimate issues of life. And the book of Job is about higher wisdom. Now, we know that God inspired this text, but who wrote it? We don't know. It's one of the more mysterious books, perhaps even more mysterious than the book of Revelation. There's also debate about when it was written, and I don't want that to get us off course for the point of the book, but I'll just say I take the approach that the book of Job was written sometime in the patriarchal era, that is, during the lives of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And we see that because Job uses names for God, like El Shaddai. He has a similar lifestyle to Abraham. And he is a priest for his family, because there was yet no priesthood, Levitical priesthood yet. But what you find in Job, perhaps even disappointingly, that there are many questions and few answers. David Allen examined the amount of questions in the book of Job, James Bijan, sorry, and he counted 122 questions. You have questions, right? I have questions. I think we're kidding ourselves if we say that as Christians we have it all figured out. Job is a book that is very real, about a man who is in such agony. He cries out and he asks all these questions of God. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to ask questions. Job asks 122 of them. And I believe that we are at a point in our church, as mature believers, that we cannot settle for just pat answers, for just little trite expressions we could put on a refrigerators or our bumper stickers. These are deep questions. And perhaps disappointingly, the book hardly answers any of them. But what the book does do is it gives us eternal truth that will give us peace even among our doubts. As one commentator said, you can't fit the answers on a postcard. So Job will have many questions, few answers, But the book itself is considered a literary masterpiece, and I believe it is based on a true story. I'm just giving you some introductory thoughts about my approach to the book. So one author says, nothing that has survived from the ancient world achieves such sublimity of thought and expression, a combination that explains the singular influence of this work to the present day. Poets. Artists, philosophers, psychologists, and playwrights are drawn to the book of Job like bees to fresh blossoms nectar, and each one who wrestles with the book captures new insights that had previously eluded readers. One British historian called it one of the grandest things ever written with pen. There is nothing written, I think, in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit. The point being that believers and unbelievers alike look at this ancient text as an amazing work of literature. And it is. And it's clearly a work of literature. In chapter 1, perhaps you're familiar, every time Job hears of a new tragedy, a messenger comes to him and the author of Job records them saying the exact same thing. Only I am alive to tell you. Only I am alive to tell you. Only I am alive to tell you. Which is evidence that this is poetic literature. Then you read 90% of the book is all poetry. If you just look at with your eyes chapter 3, chapter 4. Notice in your Bibles how the, the text becomes indented and centered like a poem. Because Job is largely a poem surrounded by one narrative in the beginning and one narrative at the end. And I don't think any of us are meant to think that when Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar talk to Job about his problems, that they're actually speaking to him in poetry. This is the author's literary work under the guise of the Holy Spirit. But let me say at the outset that literal and truthful are not the same thing. Just like in Jesus' parables, they're not meant to be taken literally, but yet at the same time, their truth is infallible. So we don't take everything in Job literally because there's a lot of imagery. The Bible's full of different genres. Revelation is apocalyptic, you interpret it in one way. Narrative, you interpret another way. And poetry, you interpret another way. And Job is largely poetry. And that it is poetry should not be controversial. But what is controversial is, is it true? Is it historical? Did it really happen? And I believe that it did. We don't take everything in Job literally because Job is a poem of wisdom, but I believe it is historically true. How do I know that? Why do I think that anyway? I think I have it on the screen here. I have like 30 slides, so... No, I don't. It's not there. But in Ezekiel... And you can just note this down, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, when Ezekiel is talking about the judgment of God, he says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. God puts Job in the same category as Noah and Daniel. Noah and Daniel are real people. The conclusion then is that according to the Old Testament, Job is a real person. And in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 11, this is James writing to New Testament believers, and he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament pulls in Job as a witness, as a real person, The Apostle James in the New Testament pulls Job in as a witness, as a real person. And I believe that Job is a real person who suffered these real tragedies. The story is written in poetic form, but the events are true. And why is that important? Why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because then we can't just dismiss this story and say this is just a fable meant to teach us something and this can never happen. Because what happened to Job happens. The righteous do suffer. People do suffer insurmountable tragedies, unexplainable tragedies. And if we reduce Job just to a fairy tale, it's easy for us to say, this could never happen to me. So I believe it happened. But one more thing about this series is I want to offer to you over the next several months a Christian perspective on the book of Job. You see, we have such a blessing as New Testament believers, having our eyes opened by the gospel, to see Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, they testify of me. The Old Testament is said to be the seed form, the New Testament is the full blossom. So you and I who have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can look at the book of Job And rejoice that what Job did not have, what Job only was able to see dimly in the darkness, we have the fullness of truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many questions in this book that ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. And when I was preparing this, part of me was thinking, well, I'll save that for the end. You know, when I get to the 12th sermon, then I'll show how Christ fits what Job was longing for, but I realized we need the gospel every week. And so I hope that even in today's sermon, there's some some light of the gospel that would break through the darkness of this text that you can take home with you and rejoice as a Christian reading this ancient Old Testament text. And so that brings me to the question for today, which is why worship God? And that's what Job did, right? We saw that in the beginning. He just learned that he lost all of his children. And we'll see in a moment. This is after learning he lost much more. And his response, it's kind of puzzling, right? He mourns and then he worships. More than suffering, more than Job himself, more than Satan, More than the three friends, the book of Job is about God. And what we believe about God, and what this book is telling us about God, is the foundation for everything else. So I hope I could communicate this to you, because this will undergird so much of what we're going to talk about as we move along in this book. Job is meant to settle the score between two competing positions. One position says Job is sincere in his worship. He's worshiping God without any strings attached. He's worshiping God for who he is despite any of his circumstances. And the second position, the one that Satan brings up, is that Job is only worshiping God because God was good to him. And if you take away all those material blessings, Job will stop. Now, we've already saw the end of this chapter. And Job was given this awful tragedy. Things were taken away from him, and yet he worshiped. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, is our worship sincere? Is our worship true when we sang only a holy God? You believe that? Is Christ the sure and steady anchor? Are we worshiping without strings attached? Are we we on the precipice of saying, Lord, if you take one more thing away from me, I'm leaving the faith? And please understand, when I say worship, I don't mean merely singing on Sunday. Worship is a way of life. There are choices we make about our time, our finances, the places we go, the things we watch, the things we say. And if we do those things under the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ, different than the world, that's an act of worship. And I'm asking you this morning, is it worth it? Because you know there are people in your life who have probably said to you, you're wasting your time. But there's something about God that Job is teaching us in chapter 1 that is in and of himself worthy of worship despite material blessings. So let's take a look at it then. Job, Job chapter 1. The story of Job. This is part 1. I've entitled this, The Most Righteous Man Suffers the Greatest Losses. And that's important right there because I think the reason why Job is singled out, well, we know the reason why Job is singled out. God singles him out. Why? Because he's the most righteous man. And then he will suffer the most tragic losses. Do you see the extremes there? The most righteous man in the world at the time, a man of prestige and wealth who was religious and seemingly sincere, loses everything. He becomes our case study, he becomes the prototype for us to say, if a man fell, that far, what does that say about me when I lose the things in my life? So we begin with the most righteous man, Job. Verses 1 to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold the feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So it begins with a narrative. This is one of the few chapters that's not poetic. And it tells us very matter-of-factly there is a man in the land of Uz. So we know right away that even though this is part of the Old Testament canon, Job is not an Israelite. He's from us, which most commentators say is in the land of Edom, east of the Jordan. He's a man of the east. Now, biblically speaking, that usually signifies a land of wisdom. We even know in the the New Testament, the the wise men, where do they come from? The east, right? I think there's a play going on here. That We have a man who's the greatest of all the men living in the land of the wise, who eventually can't figure out what's going on. You see the limits of human wisdom? Well, Job is from that land. We don't know what his name means. Um, Some say his name could actually mean hated one or where is the divine father, Um, but it's inconclusive as to the meaning. The Bible says here in verse 1 something curious, and I'm sure you're thinking about this. How can someone be blameless and upright if the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? But just like as the Bible talks about Noah, There are particular people in the Bible who God considers righteous. It doesn't mean he considers them perfect. Job was not perfect, and Job knew it. Matter of fact, over in uh, chapter number 31, verse 31 to 34, Job says, If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. Verse 33 is key. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and do not go out of doors. What Job confesses there in verse 33 is that I do have iniquity in my heart, but I have not been like others who didn't confess them. In other words, Job was a sinner like you and me, but he kept very short accounts with God. His love of God was manifest not only in his worship of God, but in how he treated others. When the Bible says in chapter 1 that Job was blameless and upright, that means he was whole. He was a man of integrity. There was no fakeness in Job. When Job sinned, he brought a sacrifice to God. He did not hide iniquity in his heart. And even Job was so sensitive against sin that he thought maybe his children sinned, and just in case they did, he made a sacrifice on their behalf. Job is a righteous man. He's of all the sinners in Edom, he's the most righteous. And he fears God, the Bible says in verse 1. He fears God. That's a biblical way of saying that he has a reverent, obedient relationship with God that is manifest in practical ways. And it goes on to say, in verse 1, he turned away from evil. Job hated sin. Isn't this the character of the Christian disciple? Isn't this what we ought to be as we as Christians grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus? That we would be men and women who are upright? That we'd be men and women who are blameless? That we fear God and turn away from evil? It's very clear at the very outset of Job chapter 1 that this is not a man who's going to suffer because of any sin in his life. And so the author of Job goes out of his way to tell us just how great Job is. Not only was he righteous, but he had all the material blessings that ancient people would love to have. So in our day and age, it might be uh, electronics and iPhones and nice fancy cars, but if you've read the Old Testament, you know it's, it's big families, right? Lots of cattle, lots of land, and a good name for yourself. Did Job lack any of that? Not a one. Again, in, in sort of poetic form, it tells us he had 7,000 sheep. I don't think that's a you know, literal number. If it was, then he was good at math, too, because he counted all of them. But roughly 7,000, 3,000 camels. And he had a big family. Seven sons, three daughters. And it also kind of tells us that his family was was a family of joy. There was a lot of joy and happiness in Job's life. I don't think that the feasting of the sons is meant to give the impression that they were living in riotous living and they they were careless and reckless, but rather they were so wealthy. They were hard workers, but they enjoyed the fruit of their father's labor. And they probably enjoyed the fruit of their own labors. And there was tremendous unity in their family. These sons each had homes, and they would invite their other brothers and their sisters to feast with them. Job is the most righteous man, and he is the most blessed man on the face of the earth at that time. And chapter 1, verse 5 ends with Thus Job did continually to remind us that this is not something Job did once in a while. This was his regular way of living. Worship to God and a blessed life. He had it all. But that brings us to the divine counsel. While Job is enjoying all the material blessings down on earth, there's something going on in heaven that would affect him forever. The divine counsel, verses 6 So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Do you see that the author's description of Job in verse 1 matches God's description of him? In other words, God was pleased with Job. And that's an insight that you and I have as readers that Job does not understand chapter after chapter after chapter. does not understand realize that God is actually on his side. God is pleased with Job. Now, throughout the Old Testament, like 1 Kings 22, Isaiah chapter 6, we see the Old Testament consistently portray God's heavenly dwelling as a royal court with the king on his throne, surrounded by supernatural ministers, angels, who carry out his will. And this is the place where policy decisions on earth are made. Again, we don't know to what degree we take this literally. There's a lot of imagery here, and I think it's communicating it to us in a way that we as human beings can understand. But what's clear is that God is sovereign, that there are angels who impact history, and that every angel, whether good or evil, must give an account to God. There's no maverick angel. Even Satan himself in this text is given limitations. And he can only do what God says he can do. Because God is sovereign. Any agency of even evil in this world only exists by God's permission. As one commentator said, the Lord has no colleagues. So when you read this text and you see the sons of God presenting themselves, these are not his colleagues, these are not his co-workers, these are his servants. There is one God. We are not him, nor are the angels him. We have these sons of God coming to God, but then there's this other one who sort of seems to intrude the scene. In Hebrew, ha-satan, the Satan, the accuser, is among the these angels. For what we know of Scripture, the accuser, Satan himself, fell from heaven like lightning and has opposed God ever since. And his job is to accuse. When God says, where have you been? God knows where he's been, but he wants Satan to report to him. And Satan says, I've been walking around the earth. It's almost like a very disrespectful way of talking to the Lord. Because Satan is a restless being. Peter says he, he, he's crawling around like a roaring lion. He's on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. But What's so interesting about this is that it's not Satan who brings Job into the equation. It's God. Now, God knows all things. He knows that Satan's job is to accuse the brethren. And so God who delights in the righteousness of his servant Job, says to Satan, Have you considered him? See, Job is a display of God's goodness. Without sounding irreverent, I could say, I think, that God is proud of him. It's as if God is saying to Job, Well done, good and faithful servant. And whenever God says that about his servants that servant is a display of God's goodness to the principalities and powers of the air. Job is God's trophy. But of course, Satan is not convinced, is he? He thinks the only reason that Job worships God is because God's put a hedge of protection and given him all these material things. That is, that Job does not have a disinterested righteousness. He has a righteousness with strings attached. And so he says to God, Yeah, he seems like a good guy, but you start taking away things from him, you stretch out your hand, you judge him, you curse him, he will curse you. Now, God knows this is not true about his servant because God has insight that Satan does not. And I think we need to be reminded of this that God knows our hearts. But Satan does not. Satan doesn't know your heart. I think sometimes we give Satan a lot of credit for sins that we need to take responsibility for. The devil made me do it. But nonetheless, Satan is still much more powerful than we are. And he can tempt us, and he can influence us, and he can put obstacles in our way. But he doesn't know the end from the beginning or the beginning from the end or what's in the heart. Only God does. So with utter confidence, our sovereign God can say to Satan, oh yeah, try me. Try him. See what happens. The accuser's thesis is clear. If worship of God is predicated upon our material blessings, then take away material blessings and worship goes away. If not, or if so, we are not worshiping God for God. And again, I ask you this morning, do you worship God for God? Why worship God? So, under the authority and permission of God, Satan is allowed to take things away from Job. The greatest losses. Verse 13 to 19. Listen to what the Word of God says. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, Job is just learning about what happened. The servant is telling him what happened. And while that's happening, there came another and said, the fire of God, likely that's lightning, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, I mean, you're talking about getting hit at the same time. There came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone escaped to tell you, Job just lost his sheep and his donkeys and his cattle and his camels, one after another after another, by foreign invaders, by natural disasters. And while he is processing all of this material loss, the worst news any parents can hear comes to him in verse 18, where yet another messenger says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This, this is hard to relate to, isn't it? Like I said, it really happened. And it's a case study of the most extremes. The most extremely righteous man. The most extremely blessed man. The most extreme form of suffering. The greatest losses. Because it is only through loss and suffering that we can truly demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. The genuineness of our faith is manifested in worshiping God no matter what. But you might say, but couldn't you just take the camels away? Like, why all of this? Well, why should we put a limit on God? Some of us in here can probably say, Yeah, if I if I lost my health as it degrades, I think I'll be okay. If I lost my job, I think I'll be okay. I lost my house. But we put a limit, don't we? But no way, our house and our health and our job and our kids. Like if that happens, God's not worthy anymore. Job is meant to show us that there are no limits to how worthy God is to be worshiped despite the greatest losses you could even imagine. In a single day, all his oxen and donkeys are destroyed. That's any material hope for the future because that's his living. All his sheep and his servants are destroyed. That's a loss of sustenance and his food and his shelter and his clothing. All his camels are destroyed. That's a sign of luxury and prestige. Gone. And then, of course, the most tragic, all his children His beloved posterity, his sons, his daughters, the ones he raised, the ones he loved, the ones he nursed, the ones he sacrificed on behalf of. From every angle, the Sabians, the Chaldeans, fire from heaven, wind from heaven, natural disasters, acts of God, every angle imaginable, Job suffers loss. And someone suggested that because the elder brother who would be the, um, that's verse 13 tells us, that it's during the feast of the elder brother, he would be the first in the cycle, first day, the day where Job most likely made sacrifices. Thus, Job would be shocked that right after making peace with God through his sacrifices, God takes away everything. That's like us questioning God. But I went to church today. How could you do this to me? Do, do you see the severity of, Job's loss here. But then we come back to this. His response. This is what baffles our minds. Verse 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Now, the tearing of the robes, very common in the Old Testament, shaving of the head, the falling to the ground, this, this is all... Signs of mourning. So when I say that Job worshipped, I don't mean to imply that there were no tears. That Job is a stoic and he just looks around and he says, Oh well, blessed be your name. So can I tell you this, brothers and sisters? It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. The Bible tells us there's a time to grieve. A time to mourn. Even in Thessalonians, Paul says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Too many times we think it's an either or. But it's a both and. You are a human being. You have emotions. When you suffer loss, you can mourn. And God is with you in your mourning. It's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question It's okay to wonder. Just read the Psalms. My God, why have you forsaken me? It's all throughout the scriptures. You're not less of a Christian because you cry. Why do we say, sorry, I'm crying to each other? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Every kid's favorite Sunday school memory verse, right? Jesus wept. But it tells us that he understands the human condition. And the human condition involves mourning and crying. It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. But your mourning and your grieving and your crying does not mean you cannot also worship. Because even in your grief, God is still God. God is still good even when you don't see it. And so Job in verse 20 cries, he mourns but then he worships and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb naked I shall return he understands he came to this world with nothing and he's going to leave with nothing the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong amazing Worship makes a liar out of the accuser. The accuser said, do this to him, let me do this to him, and he will curse you. And all these things happened that many of us would probably admit, if we're not for the spirit of self-control, we might curse God. And Job doesn't. His faith remains intact. He demonstrates that God was right all along And Satan was wrong. So Job recognized God as transcendent and good and despite losing everything he had, he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so I ask you again, why? Why do we worship God? I want to take just a few moments to... Take from the book of Job as a whole, there's three reasons why we can still worship God in the most unimaginable loss. Number one, it's because of who God is. Because of who God is. Do you worship God because of the gifts that he gives you, or do you worship the giver of the gifts? What if God took it all away? Would you still worship? The book of Job is about God most of all. As Christopher Ashe says, therefore the book of Job is about true worship, a person bowing down in the darkness to the one who is God, leaving even our most agonizing, unanswered questions at his feet. For we are his creatures, and he alone is the creator. See who he is. It's a thread all throughout this book. He's he's sovereign in majesty. He's the creator of all things. One of the ways that the book uh, hones in on this is that he is the God who made the stars. I want to park there for just a moment and remind you, brothers and sisters, that God made the stars. And that might not seem like a big deal to us, but I think it really is. I mean, even today, after all the advances in technology that we have, The stars still fascinate people. New telescopes are being invented. New things are being seen. We cannot comprehend the vastness of the universe and the millions and billions of stars out there. Your God called them all out by name. He's the God who made the stars. Immanuel Kant says, Two things fill me with awe. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Look at me in Job chapter 9. I have it on the screen for you. Job chapter 9. It says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overtakes them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, (coughs) who made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Those are the constellations visible by man. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need an eternal perspective and to, re- to remind ourselves that you're dealing with the God who made the stars. I mean, he's big. He's awesome. He inspires awe. Because he's the one who made the stars. Robert Fyall says, In the Old Testament, stars signal the power of God and the duty of mankind to give him praise. As Psalm 147.4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Psalm 148.3, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. When you look out tonight... And see the stars, and I know here in North Jersey we don't see as many stars as we could if we were out in the country. But whatever stars you do see, recognize that those stars are there to give glory to God. God made the stars. God warns his people, don't worship the stars. In Deuteronomy 4.19, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So don't worship the stars, but at the same time recognize them for what they are. They are to point us to the God who made them. Amos chapter five, verses eight and nine. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkness darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out of the surface on the earth. The Lord is His name. He makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. And this theme that I showed you from Psalms and Deuteronomy and Amos is found all throughout the book of Job. We just saw it in Job chapter 9, and now we see it in Job chapter 38, where he says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Well, I ask you, can you? Can we as human beings? I mean, we're pretty advanced. We've got Wi-Fi. We've got AI now. That's pretty big. But can we do any of these things? Does this not make us feel small? There's a song that I listen to all the time. It's from a Christian band called Ghost Ship. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're like kind of Christian rock. They don't really do songs that we can sing as a congregation, but there's this one song called Were You There where the writer takes mostly this chapter and, man, when he, I just recommend it to you if you're into that kind of music, and when he gets to the point where he says, can you lose the chords of Orion every time I just get chills because I'm reminded of how small I am and how big God is. He is the God who made The stars. G.R. Driver says, in effect, he bids the Israelites to worship the true God who has made the starry firmament and fixed the alternation of the day and night, who has put earth and sea in their places, and who has determined the rotation of the seasons which control man's livelihood on earth by the rising and setting of certain stars and constellations. God controls everything. Everything goes back to God You know, you've probably heard on the news that there's a a big winter coming, right? We're going to get a cold winter, uh, supposedly. Let's say that we're accurate about that. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Nothing. We can get our plows ready, our salt ready, our shovels ready. We can hope and pray for cancellations for school days. But at the end of the day, there are simply too many things in this universe that are beyond our control, but they're in control of God, the God who made the stars. This is the God presented to us in the book of Job because Job is about God and he's worthy of worship because of who he is. So as we look at that, it should conjure up awe and wonder at the vastness of the universe, that which the ancients believed controlled the world and thus severely impacted their own behavior is under the sovereign control and care of God the Creator. Why worship God? Job tells us, one, because of who God is, and secondly, because who God is stays the same. I'll be brief with these next two points. But brothers and sisters, if there's anything that Job 1 teaches us is that what tomorrow looks like can be completely different than what today looks like. Those of you who have suffered tragedy unexpectedly, you know that. At any moment, things can change. Your riches can go away, your health can go away, your loved ones can go away, but God will stay the same. He is the God who made the stars, and he will always be the God who made the stars. The one constant thing in Job's life is God. In one fell swoop, all his circumstances changed, but God did not. And when we worship the unchanging God, it orients us toward his unchanging goodness. Your one constant in life is God. He never changes. Job 23, 13, but he is unchangeable. And who could turn him back? What he desires, that he does. We worship God because of who he is. We worship God because who he is stays the same. And finally, because God is the satisfying reward. God is the satisfying reward. In Job chapter 22, in one of the responses, we'll get to these as we go along, but Eliphaz will tell Job the following. He'll say in verse 21, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Now, I have to say, Eliphaz is wrong. All Job's friends are wrong. Eliphaz is giving a cause and effect. If you do this, then you will love God. But if you just take verse 25 and 26, this is a shadow of the truth. The truth is that more than any material blessings, the Almighty is our gold. The Almighty is our precious silver. The Almighty is the one in whom we ought to delight and lift up our face. And I want to give you a spoiler alert because at the end of Job, Job gets the greatest reward. And it's not his children coming back. It's not his sheep coming back. It's not even the the manifold blessings he gets at the very end, end of the book. The best blessing that Job gets is found in Job 42. After Job cries out to God, chapter after chapter of Job even accusing God of wrongdoing. He says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And as the song I referenced earlier in the ghost ship song, it says, things I did not have the right to ask, but my God knelt and answered me. God is under no obligation to talk to Job. The God who made the stars does not have to give an account for his actions to anyone. You cannot put God on trial. But God speaks to Job. God shows himself to Job. And in Job chapter 42, look in verse 5. It says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now my eyes see you. This is the reward. For Job, and I'm telling you this in the first sermon, and we'll definitely look at it as we go on, but the reward is that at the end of all of this, Job knows God in a greater way. There is not necessarily a moral deficiency in Job that God is putting trials in his life so he can grow in patience or strength or none of that. There is not necessarily sin in Job's life that God is punishing him for. The reason God allows this suffering is that Job would know him more. And that takes us to one of my favorite verses in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Job, you can fill that in with all of Job's material blessing. Let not the man boast in his great name. Let him not boast in his sheep, in his camels, in his children, in his wealth, even in his own righteousness. God tells us to boast in knowing him. Because he is our satisfying reward. God is not a means to the end. If you're using God as a means to the end, repent. So many fake preachers out there, come to God and your marriage will be fixed. Come to God and your bank account will grow. That is heresy of the highest order. God is not a genie in the bottle. God is not a means to an end. God is not your personal assistant. God is not your colleague. He's not your co-pilot. He is the God who made the stars. And just knowing him is worth it. Because he is our satisfying reward. As Thomas Merton said, if we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we don't get what we hope for. Are there things in your life that you love more than you love God? I want to let you know that he is your satisfying reward. Why do we worship God? Because of who God is. Because who God is stays the same. And because God is the satisfying reward. Now, I understand I'm going a little long. Maybe next week I won't have 30 slides. But I do think it's important that we end with gospel light. Because there's something about being a New Testament believer that will help make the connection between this truth and where we are today under the lordship of Christ. Romans 12.1 tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we are called to be worshipers, just like Job was. In the New Testament, we ought to worship God. And true worship is not just singing songs, but it's abandoning this world and self and desires to serve the living God with joy and contentment. And the only short test by which the world will know that our worship is real versus just pretending is when we go through loss and suffering, whether our faith stays intact. Only when worship comes with a cost may we tell if it's true. Now in the Old Covenant, the blessings that came were large harvests and expansive kingdoms and big families and great names. But here in the New Covenant, the blessings that we get are spiritual and internal and eschatological. Because we have something that Job longed to have but could not have yet. We have a mediator. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul himself said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, as this is the last verse, when the apostles were talking about with Jesus about him going to the Father, Jesus says something profound here that I think makes the connection between where we are as New Covenant, New Testament believers, and where Job was living under the Old Testament. Jesus said in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father. Isn't that what Job was asking for? In his agony saying, God, show yourself. Give me an answer. Make an account for what you're doing to me. Well, Philip says, show us the Father. And in verse 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, my Christian brethren, you have something that Job longed for. You have access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Job's story is groping in the dark, and he only arrives at the very surface of this idea that knowing God triumphs everything. But now we, as recipients of the gospel, Have access to God that Job only dreamed about. Because if we have Christ, who is God, then we have God. If there's anything you get out of this, it's this. Because of your faith in Christ, you have a relationship with the God who made the stars. He has descended upon us by giving us his Son to bear our human condition to bear our sins in his body, to die on the cross for them, to propitiate and satisfy God's wrath, and to be raised on the third day for our justification. And because of your faith in him and thereby your union with him, you know this very God in an intimate way. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, do not place your hope in anything in this world. There's only one God who made the stars. There's only one who knows everything about you. There's only one who is good and wise and perfect in every way and worthy of our worship. And thus I say, worship God. Worship God in the storms, in the darkness. Worship God. And keep worshiping God. And come what may, let the accuser have his best shot. And even if everything is taken away, Let us come to this place in our lives where we can say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.